0: Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral. Or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you open our hearts this morning to your word, O God. That your spirit move upon us. And Lord, that you change something in us this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can all go ahead and be seated. Just kind of a, a, a brush past uh, what we talked about last week uh, there at the very beginning of our text. We talked about uh, lifting up those drooping hands, uh, strengthening those weak knees. Uh, another section of it uh, was, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but uh, rather be healed. So we, we look at that, that first part, we talk about we need to get it together. We're in this race, we're in this battle, we need to get our hands up, we need to get our our knees strengthened. We use the analogies of uh, first a uh, a gladiator, so to speak, and and a coliseum. Uh, The dangers that he would find himself in if he dropped his hands. You gotta keep those hands up. We use those hands up like this in order to parry the blows, but also uh, not just being on the defensive, but also on the offensive to, to, to block the blows of the enemy, all those different things. Those weak knees. We come back to that illustration of the runner in the Colosseum running that race and how he would desperately need to have those strengthened knees. And we all know what it's like, you know, that our legs get a little noodly, our knee our knees get weak. Sometimes we've got bad knees and we need to put some some healing balm on them. We need to massage them. We need to wrap them up nice and good in order to be able to complete that race that's before us. And the point that we were making there was we need to stay in this fight. We need to stay in the race. Uh, now's not the time to grow feeble. Not Now's not the time to get so tired that we drop our hands and we let the enemy take over on us. We also saw that the second part of that was we need to clear the path. He says make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Our attitudes, our testimonies, uh, all those different things that we can use to clear that path from all the debris that is left there by those who have run before us and maybe failed. So we, we, we clear that path off, we get that path clean and we, and we know that as we're on that path, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be tribulation. Those things are bad enough. We don't need other stuff cluttering up that path for us. And one of the ways that we do those two things goes back to what we said there at the very beginning of chapter 12. We can, we can keep our hands up. We can keep them from drooping. We can keep our knees strengthened and strong. We can clear those paths if we keep our eyes looking to Jesus Christ at all times. That's, uh, if I could say, there's one key to the to the Christian life, it's keep your eyes on Jesus, keep your eyes on the gospel message, keep your eyes on what Christ accomplished for us in that new covenant that was uh, established through His blood and His work on the cross. So today, we got get it together, we got get a clear path, and now we want to get the right goals. And our text this morning actually starts up in verse 14. And, and, and we read through that. Uh, we strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now I think the first two points of this full text, get it together and, and get a clear path, <clears throat> I think they go together very nicely. When we start thinking about the, the, that beginning part, uh, get it together. We think of when we lift up drooping hands, when we strengthen the weak knees. It's not, uh, is it not evidence when we strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness that only those who are the Lord's will uh, persevere to the end for? Is not that one of the ways that, that we see that? When we when we lift up those drooping hands, we will be able to, to find peace. We'll be able to make peace. We'll be able to live with holiness. Are they not the ones who have cleared the paths? Not just for themselves, but for others. Those ones that strive for peace, that strive for holiness. Are they not the same ones who will... Fight against and, and uh, run that race? And run from spiritual adultery and the profane living? Are they not called to clear the paths of all the wickedness and the profaneness mm-hmm. left there by mere professors of faith and the apostates who know nothing of God and His kingdom? I think we see, really in our, in our complete text this morning, I think we see four goals that are in mind as we run the race, as we get it together, as we clear the path. I think the first thing that we see, the first goal is this. We strive for peace with everyone and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, there, there's so much here. And let me just pick some of the fruit because we... I, I almost, when I was making the sermon, I'm going, well, man, that, that one verse is worthy of an entire sermon, maybe two or three sermons. But we, we're only going to pick some of this fruit out of the tree today. And I'm going to pray that you'll just meditate on it, and the Lord will give you more of it. I think we're looking at several things here. I think we're looking at peace among believers, peace among believers and unbelievers, and, the, and, and this Link of holiness between holiness and peace. The first thing is, we strive for peace with everyone. Charles Spurgeon said, if we would follow peace, we must gird up our loins with the girdle of forbearance, patience. We must resolve that as we will not give offense, so neither will take offense. And if offense be felt, We must resolve to forgive. Fallen creatures, that's what we are. We are fallen creatures. We are prone to selfishness, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. And how often it is that we are found to be envious and greedy and contentious and filled with wrath and revenge. And none of those things, in case you haven't realized it, none of those things will lead to peace among people. And I would gather to say that all of those things that I just named is why there is not peace in our nation right now. Why there's not peace in the very world in which we live in. The root of it all comes back down to sin. The reason why we can't have peace is sin. You want to know why we can't agree to anything in Washington? Because people there are selfish, they are self-righteous, and they are self-centered. They are envious and greedy, contentious. And it's all sin. You want there to be peace? There has to be peace between a man and Jesus Christ first. Then there must be a crucifying of the flesh and the sins that so easily beset us, then we will find peace. But i got to tell you, it ain't going to come in this world. We're never going to experience true peace in this world. It will be when we go to glory with the Prince of Peace that we find that lasting peace. And I believe that strive for peace, for peace, I believe that strive for peace is without exception. And that means two things. One, there must be peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you think I'm joking that I have to, and sometimes we go, really? We really got to talk about this? That there's peace in the church? That there's peace between brothers and sisters? Go to a business meeting sometime. Ours are really good here. But I've been to business meeting, man, where lights are turned off and people are wanting to kill the pastor and all sorts of crazy things happen. (laughs) There has to be peace between brothers and sisters in Christ. Right here in the family of God, we sometimes go, Why isn't there any peace? Why does it seem like there's never peace in the church? The one place in all of this world that a Christian should experience as close to godly peace as we can should be in the church family, right here in the church. But that's not so all the time, is it? We look in the Word of God, and it's there also. Listen, there was contention. There was no peace between Lot and Abraham. King David had no peace in his family most of the time, especially with his son Absalom. Paul and Barnabas, there was a contention there, right there in the church. The Hellenists and the Hebrews in Acts chapter 7 Contention, No peace. Paul and Peter. You see what I'm getting at? <clears throat> there should be peace in the church first and foremost. There should be peace in our families first and foremost. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And how many times have you walked into a church? How many times have you walked into a church and you have just felt the discord? You felt the contention, the conflict, something that just that's lying just underneath the surface. You felt it. You, you didn't know what was going on. Sometimes it's going on in our church. We just we know it's there. Nobody can put their finger on it. How many of us? have been the reason for that lack of of peace? How many of us have played into that when there has been no peace in the church? No peace among brothers? And Christians, i got to tell you, it's not supposed to be like that. That is outright ungodliness and it needs to be repented of. Let's look at a couple of verses. Go over to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter five, <laughs> Matthew chapter five, and let's look at verse nine. Jesus says, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the son, for they shall be called sons of God." Turn over a couple more to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 and verse 19. What does Paul say? So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Go over one book. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. I appeal to you brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Lastly, or turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 15. See that no one repays evil. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do to one another and to everyone. One last one, James chapter 3 and verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You hear what the Bible is telling us here? As believers, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to strive for peace among us, first and foremost. Oh, we're called to be at peace among ourselves. And we're to guard against any <clears throat> ill feelings that come up in the church. But wait a second. I think we're talking also about peace between the believer and the world. And yes, it says, strive for peace with everyone as much as we can, even with our enemies. (coughs) Jesus said the world would hate us because we belong to Him. The world would despise us Because we belong to Him. The world will persecute us, kill us, because of Him and our faith in Him. That kind of sounds like we have enemies out there. And yet we are told here to strive for peace with everyone. And again, we can't can't shirk this responsibility. We have to say, there it is. We can't deny it. We can't get around it. Because the Bible tells us these things. And we if we look in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 7. Proverbs 16 and verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. We go back over to the book of Romans again in chapter 12 and verse 18. And Paul tells us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. What does Jesus tell us out of his own mouth? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And listen. I know that in the world we've got bad neighbors. We've got neighbors who just get all over us and there's ne- there never seems to be any peace with neighbors. I know that sometimes there's never any peace with our co-workers. But Scripture is telling us that we are to strive for peace with everyone. And if you're like me, that goes against the grain for many people. That rubs the cat's fur the wrong way. And and just so you know, I'm not talking about defending ourselves uh, against violent criminals or or those who seek to harm our property and our finances through thievery or robbery or burglary. That's That's not what we're getting out here. I think we as Christians are called to protect each other and protect others in those circumstances because you know bottom line is that if an enemy comes through the door this morning intent on harming us I've got something for him I've got Mr. Glock he's not going to come in here and harm us what I'm talking about though and I think what scripture is talking about when the enemies of Christ uh, and his gospel bring upon us severe persecution because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, we are to strive for peace with them. When because of our faith in Christ, they lay upon us severe trials, terrifying tribulations, and pernicious persecutions, guess what? We are to strive for peace with them. And it doesn't mean that we're always going to find it either. And now I want you to understand... This word here, okay? I left this deliberately for, for the very bottom part of this. I want you to understand what this what this means to strive or to follow in the Greek when it talks about strive for peace or follow uh, hard after peace. Pink tells us it is a very emphatical word signifying an earnest pursuit. It is the eager chasing after of something which flies from us being used of hunters and hounds after a game. You see, you getting it now? We are to pursue this earnestly. And in the Greek, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's it's an action that is to be continuous, a, a repeated action. But not just now, but even into the future. We are to pursue peace. We are to follow hard after it with everyone. Psalm 34 verse 14 Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And we just ask ourselves this morning, Christians, is that what we're doing? Those of us, those of you who are are still working out, out in the secular world, are you striving for peace with everyone at your place of employment? Are you striving for peace with your neighbors? Are you striving striving for peace with that aggravating person that's in the express lane, 10 items only, and they've got 42 items because you counted them? Are you striving for peace with them? It's the same way at home. Ask my wife, are you striving for peace with Rob Shries? And she'll go, I, I try it i'm trying i'm trying real hard are you striving for peace within your own families better yet how are we doing striving for peace right here in this body of christ how are we doing when when it comes to striving for peace with our brothers and sisters in christ with those outside the church, the unbeliever, the enemies of Christ. Are you running a race that is striving for peace with every man in every step that we run? And just so you know, when you read through Pilgrim's Progress, there was a bunch of people that were on the King's highway. And they were not believers. They were enemies. They tried so many times to distract Christian, get him off on different paths. Are we running a race that is striving for peace even with those people? But we have to wait because the author exhorts uh, his readers to strive after something else in the text. He says to strive and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peace and holiness cannot be separated in the Christian life. William Gouge reminds us peace has special relation to man and his good. Holiness to God and His honor. These two may no more be severed than the two tables of the law. Be sure then that peace lacks not this companion of holiness. If they cannot stand together, let peace go and holiness be cleaved unto. We're called to strive for peace, but we are never to negate holiness so that there is peace hear that we don't we don't walk away from the holiness that we are called to just to make peace in a circumstance or situation if peace cannot be achieved holiness is to continue to be hotly pursued in our lives strive Strive with everything inside you to have a holiness that is devoted to the living God and and a life that lives like it, a life that looks like it. And we have to ask ourselves, we're told to strive for holiness, for the holiness. Are we doing it just like that term says? Are we doing it as a command? Are we doing it continuously? Is it a repeated action in our lives? Not just now, but later on in the future, we're striving for it. Are we striving for it like the hunter and the hounds are going after the prey? We are to strive for holiness in body and in mind. We're to seek hard after inner and outward holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and, second, and 16 says, But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Boy, that one hits us, doesn't it? To be holy in all of our conduct, since it is written, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." And I really don't—I really don't think what he's talking about here. Uh, and, I, and I disagree with with some of the, the guys, uh, Edgar Andrews. Uh, I see what he's saying, but but I don't agree. I don't think he's talking about Imputed holiness here. I think he's talking about the holiness. I don't think he's talking about the holiness that is applied to us at salvation that comes from Christ. Because why would he say strive for it? When one already has it. But Why then does he say without which no one will see the Lord? We are to pursue after his holiness in our lives, every moment, at every turn, at every hill, every valley, in trials and in temptations, in triumphs and in sorrows and in joy. To pursue passionately practical holiness is to persevere and do so until the end. Paul said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. And Christians to, to today, the exhortation from Scripture comes to us. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And you all know like I do what these, the, these readers at that time were suffering, the persecutions and the trials that they were undergoing. They had a lot of enemies and they would need to strive For that peace even with their enemies. They would need to strive for holiness. They were in that race. And and the only thing that's going to keep them going on. Is to lift up those arms. Strengthen those knees. Clear the path. And make peace. Search for peace. Seek it out. and Seek out holiness. The second goal that I think we see. In our text this morning. is, Is this. In the first part of verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now, I counted already, I think there's one, two, three, four, five. I counted five different occurrences in the book of Hebrews where there is a warning. And let's look at them real quick because I think it's very important that we understand this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2 we get the first warning. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's our first warning. Go over to chapter 3 and look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another today, or but exhort exhort another one another every day, as long as as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's the second warning. Go over to chapter four, verse eleven. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that. No one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Chapter 6, in verses 4 through 6, and we're going to come back to this several more times. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to, re- again to repentance, since, they're, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And then lastly, chapter 10 and verses 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? There are some pretty severe warnings for the believer there. Those weren't to the lost; those he was given to those who profess to be Christians. And I want to be very clear here. I do not, nor does the church hold to any position that says in any way that a believer can lose their salvation. Nor would I say that once saved is once saved, always saved, really fits in there either. The true believer, saved by the blood and the salvific work of Christ will, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the working of His power in our lives, they will persevere to the very end and be glorified in salvation's final consummation. So if you want to say that, yeah, they're, they're saved and they'll never lose their salvation, I, you, can, you can stretch that one in there if you want. But if you're elect... And you persevere to the end. No, you will not lose your salvation. But those—wait a second now—those who are mimics, there's lots of them. Those who are mimics, who are mere professors, would do well to take heed, because we think back again to that that passage in chapter six and verses four four through six. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. come to repentance. 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 40. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Haggai 1.7 Thus saith the Lord of hosts consider your ways. Our text this morning says see to it. The King James I like it a little bit better i think it has a i think it has a more powerful connotation to it, it says looking diligently another version reads looking earnestly and the greek take take or exercise oversight uh, to jealously take care of one another and again it's it's in the present tense making it uh, meaning that we are to be at it constantly diligently responsibly actively it is like the diligent look of a, of a marksman at his target. He sets his eye on the target and his, and his eye stays right on it. So what is it that, that we are to be doing constantly? We're to be seeing that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And what does that mean? Well, John Brown says that to fail of this grace is just to come short of heaven. It means you fail to get into heaven. And listen, that means first and foremost that we look diligently at ourselves. We must be sure that we are of that divine grace that has given us salvation. But then we must make sure that all those who claim to be part of the body of Christ are also true partakers of that saving grace. When was the last time you had somebody come up to you in the church and ask you, are you sure of your salvation? Can you tell me why you are saved? Can you tell me about your salvation experience? Tell me what it is that saved you. When was the last time someone asked you that? Some people take offense to it. I've been saved for 20 years. I know that I'm... You know, they just got all worked up if you ask them about their salvation. I think that's a legitimate question. I think that's an appropriate question. I think it's a question that we need to be asked sometimes so that it takes us back a step and we reevaluate, We examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. And remember, there are tares mixed in with the wheat. There are wolves among the sheep. There's leaven in the loaf. I think... If, we, if I eyeball it right now, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 people. Remember the, the parable of the ten virgins? Half of them didn't make it. So who are the half this morning? Examine yourselves. Make sure you are in the faith. I'm not calling you to doubt Your salvation. I'm calling you to step back and confirm your salvation. Mimics professors, those who are mere professors and yet not possessors. And the text doesn't say listen, what the text doesn't say is it doesn't say, see to it that no one falls from the grace of God. It does not say that. So there we take that, you can lose your salvation, we throw that one right out. It doesn't say that you fall, from, you, you fall from the grace of God. It says no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Again, we think back in chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. These people have been enlightened in their head. They had a head knowledge, but they were lacking the heart knowledge. They had tasted the heavenly gift, but they had not eaten and digested of it. They had shared in some of the externalities of the spirit, but not the internal re- regeneration. They had tasted the goodness of God's word, seen the promises and the hand and uh, the hand of God throughout history, but again, not eat, not eaten the bread of life. They had seen the powers of the age to come and seen the messianic kingdom that had come with Jesus coming but they had not experienced the power of Christ in their own lives they were failing to obtain the grace of God and the apostle John had called them out he said they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us 1 John chapter 2 these are those who are apostates And oh, that we may see it and that we may be looking diligently so that none fail to obtain the grace of God. And oh, that we would be faithful in looking for those and inquiring of those and making sure of their salvation. But maybe, as Pink thinks, maybe it also includes some other things that we can fail to obtain the grace of God. We can fail to obtain the the grace of God by not giving ourselves in complete submission to the gospel. How many of you are truly in submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything it entails? We do it by not finding a complete satisfaction in the divine grace of God that has been communicated to and ruling in our hearts supreme. We can do it by not persevering in those outward shows of His graces in our lives. We can do it by not continuously seeking to grow in faith, to pray, to read the Word of God, to run from sin. Christian, today is the day to begin looking diligently that no one, not even yourself, fails to obtain the grace of God. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the elder or the deacon or the Sunday school teacher's job. It's all of our jobs. It's a goal for everyone who is in Christ to look diligently so that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Third goal is this that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many may become defiled. The third goal identifies the roots of bitterness and deals with it appropriately. This is what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verses 14 through 18. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verses 14 through 18. He says this. Moses says, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. You know how we lived in in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away, apostatizing, turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's what Moses is talking about. This is what the, the author here is getting at. This, this root of bitterness is the sin of unbelief. The root below the surface eventually springs up and bears a bitter fruit. And we know what the bitter consequences of sin, what the sin of unbelief are in the end. It's death. Spiritual death and separation from the grace and mercy and love of God. And how... Oh, How tragic those who had once seemed to and appeared to embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, who looked to be part of that new covenant, had now walked away to the doctrines of demons and heresies of the highest order. But there's a tragedy upon the tragedy. Those apostates who either... Those these apostates who either sneak into the congregation or, or they rise up from within the congregation. They don't just lie there silently in the corner suckling on their own damning doctrines. No, they are not satisfied until they offer it up to everyone and defile as many as they can. And we see it in churches even today. People going back to these old heresies, denying the basic tenets of the Christian faith, denying the essentials the essentials of what we believe of Christ and of the Gospel. And that's that root of unbelief that springs up in the church. And Lane tells us the one the, the sin of one individual can corrupt the entire community when that sin is apostasy. Christian, what are you doing about that? What are you doing about these, these damning doctrines that come up in the church? This, this spirit of unbelief, this apostasy that comes up in the church. What are you doing about it? What are we doing about it as a church? I think back uh, to, this, to the old hymn. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing. Are we doing that? Are we diligently about that, even inside the church? And again, it's not just the pastor or the elder or the deacon or the Sunday school teacher's job to deal with apostasy and unbelief that rises in the church. It's all of our job. If you've been coming to church here for any length of time, bottom line is you should be pretty pretty grounded in your doctrines. You should know when false doctrines rise up. See, so you need to know the Word of God. You need to know the truths of Scripture, the gospel of salvation well enough that you can catch a whiff. Man, you just catch a whiff. You catch a little bit of that stank. You catch it in your nose when you hear an unbelief. Or you hear or you smell something that sounds heretical. Man, you smell it. You immediately know that smell. Or that taste of it uh, uh, comes into your mouth. And man, the first thing you go, <laughs> and you spit it out because you know. You know. That it's not right. Your heart feels it. And immediately your heart rejects it. And says that's heresy. That's damning doctrine. And Jesus said we will know them. Matthew chapter 7. Again. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 7. And listen to what he says. In in chapter 7 verse 16 through 18. He says. You will recognize them by their fruits. are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You'll know it. When, that, when those damning doctrines, when those falsities come up, you will be able to pick it up right immediately. And when we know them, we take out not just the fruit, but the entire root of unbelief of false doctrine. We don't don't leave the roots stuck in the ground. No, we yank it out so there's no more defilement among the people. We gently try to bring them to correction, repentance, and restore them once again to the body. But where there is no repentance, we let the swine return to its swill. And lastly, the fourth goal. We see it in, in verses 16 and 17, that no one is sexually immoral ...or unholy like Esau... ...who sold his birthright for a single meal... ...for you know that afterward... ...when when he desired to inherit the blessing... ...he was rejected... ...for he found no chance to repent... ...though he sought it with tears... ...we're given this beautiful illustration here... ...in the story of Esau... ...as recorded in Genesis chapter 25... ...so what was wrong with Esau? What was so bad about what he did? Well, our text tells us three things... ...sexual immorality... ...unholiness... And he was rejected. Esau was one sexually immoral. Now we need to pause here for a second. Sexual immorality is a grievous sin. It's doubly grievous within the church when it happens among believers. And it will destroy people's lives and families. It will destroy churches and ministries. But I don't think that that is the intent here of this passage. I don't think he's talking about that. We do not see sexual sexual immorality pointed out in the life of Esau in the Old Testament. Nor do we see it addressed anywhere else in the entire epistle to Hebrews as a problem that they were struggling with. I believe that it's referring to spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. Or more bluntly, as Ezekiel puts it, some 26 different times... Spiritual whoring. And Esau was guilty of that very thing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a a minute. He was also unholy or profane. He despised that which was sacred. He was spiritually bankrupt. Calvin said the profane are those in whom the love of the world so holds sway and prevails that these have forgotten heaven and give spiritual and give the spiritual kingdom of Christ either no place or the last place in their concerns. Well, why was he unholy? Why was he profane that which was sacred to the Jews, the blessing of the firstborn, that birthright? he sold for a mere morsel of food. It was worth next to nothing to him. That which would make him the priest and king of his family, which gave him a double portion of all things, placed him over his brothers, and as someone has said recently, he played the whore for a bowl of lentil stew. Esau chose to satisfy his flesh over all that would have given over all that God would have given him. Wow. He chose what the world offered now rather than the promises of God as yet unseen. And that is spiritual adultery. For you or any of us to put anything above the living God To make Christ secondary to a bowl of lentil stew, it is profane. It is unholy. And it's spiritual adultery. Lastly, it says that he was rejected. When he finally saw all that he had lost from a worldly perspective and with his fleshly eyes, oh, then he wept. Oh, then he cried tears. Then he was broken and on his knees. But we never see Esau repent. All he showed was a worldly sorrow. And guess what, people? It was too late. There was no turning back for Esau. Some people believe that what he did here was commit the unforgivable sin. They believe the same thing about Cain too. It was too late for him. Why? Because what does Hebrews 6:4 tell us? For it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Had the original reader done this already? Were they were they faithful and able to catch these who were in danger of this and turn them back in time for to the truth? Because that's what the readers were facing too. Would they take what the world would have to offer over what God was offering in the new covenant in Christ? And listen, are we looking diligently for those people in the church who might be that close? Because they're here. The temptation was there for the original reader and it's there for us today. Do we see it in our own lives? Do we see it in others' lives? And we see the danger that they're in. Do we call it out when we see it in the church and take corrective action? Because men and women's souls are at stake here. Eternity may be in the twinkling of an eye for any one of us. And it should be our goal that in running this race we heed all the exhortations that That we have had from verse 1 to verse 17. If we could just keep our eyes on Christ. If we could just keep our eyes on Christ. On his supremacy in all creation. The supremacy of the new covenant established by Christ's salvific work on the cross. If we were to keep our eyes on Christ. We would lift our drooping hands. We would strengthen our weak knees. We would make straight paths. We would bring peace and holiness wherever we go. We would keep the many from failing to obtain the grace of God and would crush the life of apostasy out of it and keep many from being defiled by unbelief and spiritual adultery and profaneness. Those are our exhortations that we have this morning. That's the plea that I give to to you this morning. To sit back for a moment and meditate on what this is telling us. About how how we are to conduct ourselves in this race. And remember, it's all to the glory of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would touch our hearts with your word. Most importantly, oh God, I pray and I ask that if there is one here who is in danger this morning, in danger of hellfire, oh God, stir their hearts that today would be the day of salvation for them. That today would be the day that they would acknowledge that all have sinned, even themselves, and come short of the glory of God. That the only wage that is ready for them is the wage of death. But there is a free gift of God and it's eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that even now while they are yet dead sinners, Christ died for them. And all they need to do this morning is confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in their hearts that God has raised them from the dead and they will be saved. For one that for with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Oh God, do that work in their hearts this morning. Put that gift of faith in them. Regenerate them. Bring them back to life, oh God. And let them believe on the Lord Jesus this morning. And we ask it in Christ's name.